like to <clears throat> I'd like to begin tonight. Is that recording? I mean, is that can you hear? Okay. Can you hear okay? Yes? No? It's not on, I don't think. Is it on? Okay. All right, so tonight I'd like to begin with a, a poem that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote about meditation practice. It's a poem called Froglessness. Froglessness. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness. When a frog is put on the center of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There is something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. It is difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging. But you and I also both have frog nature in us. That is why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness, is its name. So this may mean more to you after sitting here for two days than it would have on the first night. You have met your frogless nature, your froggy nature, and perhaps you've also detected the possibility of some froglessness. What we have been emphasizing in the first two days of the retreat and what you have been practicing is this simple but not so easy task of learning to gather the attention, to focus it on something rather simple, and to sustain that attention over some period of time, to sustain it moment to moment. So there's this uh, cultivation of a certain power of mind which becomes the foundation for our practice. It helps the mind to feel settled and stable and here, here. So tonight I'd like to look, take a closer look at mindfulness, what it is and how we experience it directly in our experience. The word for mindfulness in the Pali language is satipatthana. Sati is a word that has somewhat a number of variations on. Uh, so let me say what some of these uh, words are. One, one, uh, one, one thing it connotes is this quality of remembering, remembering. Oh, here I am, remembering what, that you are present, you are here. It also has the connotation of knowing, not only remembering you're here, but knowing you're here and knowing what is present in the sense of recognizing what is present, not uh, having to learn anew what is present, but recognizing the breath, recognizing your stepping, recognizing tasting, seeing, hearing, 
that these are things you recognize in the present. So I'd like to do a little exercise with you. I'd like you for just a moment to look at your hands. Put your hands out in front of you and look at your, look at your hands. And we can identify two different ways of knowing or connecting with our hands. One way is through the story that we tell ourselves about our hands. Perhaps it brings up memories of looking at our hands. We might think, well, they look like my mother's hands, or I never liked my hands, I wish I had different hands, or uh, we like how they're looking. Maybe we think their manicure is done well for our hands, or whatever we have, some story that we have about our hands, or maybe some appreciation of our hands and what they can do for us in our lives. We can think about our hands. Now move your hands slowly back and forth. The, the other way that we can connect with our hands is through our direct experience. Instead of thinking about our hands, we can sense, feel our hands. We can have a direct experience of, the, of what, it, what our hands are what sensations are present in our hands, what they feel like. Just as we have been asking you to do in the walking, in the sitting and breathing, we can also tune into the felt sense of our hands right now. What do you sense in your hands? Perhaps warmth, perhaps uh, lightness or stiffness or heaviness or tension or uh, coolness or moisture. This is the direct experience of our hands in this moment. This is mindfulness. This quality of connecting directly with the felt sense of our experience. When we are thinking about our experience, whether it's our hands or seeing or stepping or breathing or tasting, we are in what we call the story, the story that we tell ourselves. We can even observe that we are telling ourselves a story. We can observe the, the even as we're telling it, we can see the thoughts in our mind that compose a story about what is happening right now. When we're experiencing in this other way, when we're experiencing directly, we are being mindful. Mindfulness, this quality of knowing directly what is happening in, the, in our present experience, this quality is pre-conceptual. The knowing is present before any thought arises. If I ring this bell, what is your direct experience? What do you know immediately before any thought arises? Yeah, hearing, 
you hear sound. You don't need to think in order to have that experience. So mindfulness is pointing us to this capacity for knowing that is immediate, direct, and occurs before any thought arises. So not only with hearing, we can directly experience all aspects of our experience. Seeing, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking, sensing, emotions, pain, pleasure, holding, openness, joy, sorrow. All of this is uh, part of what we include in the practice of mindfulness. One of the things that we notice with mindfulness is that it is an invitation to feel, to sense, to come alive through the direct experience of reality we come alive and we discover that it is a more fulfilling way of being here than thinking about things. One teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, gave the analogy of the difference between thinking about something and directly experiencing it as the difference between reading a menu and actually eating the meal. Reading the menu does not actually provide nourishment, does it? It only points to that as a possibility. It's only when you eat the meal that you actually receive the nourishment. So we could say that reading about mindfulness, reading about meditation, even reading about Spirit Rock is a very different experience than actually coming and being here and practicing. Another teacher, one of the the monks who occasionally teaches here, Ajahn Amaro, says that approaching life through thinking about it or only reading about it is like trying to drink water from the word cup. It cannot be done. And yet we live in a world that privileges this kind of experience, of this kind of living through concepts. In meditation, we say that words and concepts are useful. They can point us to, towards reality, but not, they don't substitute for the direct experience. So an example uh, uh, from my own practice is that when I was young, I was raised in a Protestant church. It didn't make much of an impression on me. I heard many words like, you know, love and forgiveness and compassion. And they were just words. They didn't have much import for me. Then I met many, many years later my first Buddhist teacher who was a Tibetan Lama. And he was teaching about compassion. And for the first time in my life, I had a direct experience of compassion, of what he was speaking about. Something touched me and I felt this direct 
understanding of compassion not as just a word but as a living force. It became a living reality. Up until that time it had only been a word. And another time in the middle of a long retreat in in, uh, Massachusetts, one of my first long retreats, I was, at the beginning of the retreat, I had all kinds of experiences, all kinds of drama, all kinds of emotions. It was very, uh, it was very, uh, a lot going on all the time. So I thought, well, this is what meditation is. But after some weeks, it all kind of quieted down. And to me, it felt like, well, nothing is happening. Where did it all go? Where did, where's the drama? Where's the intensity? There was nothing like that. And so I, was, I went to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, at the time, and I described what was happening, and he smiled, and he said, Anna, I think you're beginning to experience calm. <laughs> and it was a real revelation, because I had never until that moment considered that this would ever apply to me, this word calm. But there it was. I was experiencing directly something that was definitely calmness. And this very much is one of the products of mindfulness, that we begin to have direct experiences of things that we may not have names for, that may not have yet appeared in our experience. We may not have uh, learned what that direct experience might be. So mindfulness is, is kind of a very different way of orienting ourselves to this life, to our life experience. Because normally in our lives, what are we caught up in? What do you notice about what you're caught up in in your life? Let's hear. Doing. Thinking. Huh? Warring, struggle. Other people's perceptions, judging, getting things right. So this is a radically different orientation to all those things that you, you have just mentioned. What you have just mentioned, we could say in a way, is the play of the liking-disliking mind. We like some things, we don't like others. We try to get more of what we like and less of what we dislike. And in the middle of all this going on, we fail to notice, one, that we're here, that this, this is, there's a quality of presence, that we're here, and that we can notice the direct experience that we're having. In meditation, we not only discover the direct experience, but we also discover that we can be directly experiencing something and be aware of it at the same time. We can be directly experiencing a sensation in the body and be aware of it simultaneously. We can see and know that we're seeing. We can hear and know that we're hearing. We can feel pain and know that we're feeling pain. There's a little Zen story about the student who goes to the Zen master and asks the question, what does it mean to be awake? The Zen master says, eating, 
walking, seeing, hearing, working, resting. And the student says, but everyone does that. Everyone eats and hears and walks and does all that. And the Zen master smiled and said, but not everyone knows they are eating and walking and and working and talking and all the things that go on every day. So mindfulness speaks to this capacity to know in the present what is happening, to be present with that knowing. Why is this important? It leads us away from getting lost in our stories. It leads us away from the world of trying to get things, trying to get rid of things, getting more of this, less of that, speculation, evaluation, judgment. It leads us away from all of that and reorients us to this present reality. A New Yorker cartoon speaks of this, uh, this kind of uh, drama that goes on in life around the, the ways we get entangled in our, in our hatred, in our greed, in our misperceptions. There's a little cartoon of a, uh, a woman uh, being, she's sitting on her living room sofa. She's being interviewed by a detective and a policeman. And behind the sofa is a, a body that looks pretty dead and a, a male body. And she's saying to the detective who's interviewing her, she says, he misspoke, I misheard, then shots rang out. <laughs> And it's like that, you know, things happen. How did this happen? I don't know, it just happened. Another New Yorker cartoon. I get a lot of good material from the New Yorker. Um, this one is, takes place in a psychiatrist's office with a woman saying, there are three people, the psychiatrist sitting behind the desk, uh, a man and woman in the office. The woman is sitting there saying to the psychiatrist, something while her husband is standing up on the desk of the psychiatrist with his fist in the air kind of railing like this and she the woman is saying to the psychiatrist can you give him something to calm him down until the country gets straightened out (laughs) (laughs) we get very entangled in all kinds of drama and mindfulness is the way of disentangling ourselves, coming back to what is called sanity. The way we contact reality with mindfulness is sanity. What is happening right now? I'm sitting, I'm breathing, I'm thinking, I'm feeling. This is sanity. Wang Po said, The foolish reject what they see, not what they think. The wise reject what they think, not what they see. Or as Wes Nisker puts it, I have a thinking problem.
thinking can lead us into misperception. Teacher uh, Hamid Ali says, the way we ordinarily see the world is not the way it really is because we see it from the perspective of our judgments and preferences, our likes and dislikes, our fears and our ideas of how things should be. So to see things as they really are, which is to see things objectively, we have to put these aside. Seeing things objectively means that it doesn't matter whether we think what we're looking at is good or bad, it means just seeing it as it is. If a scientist is conducting an experiment, he doesn't say, well, I don't like this, so I will ignore it. He may not personally care for the results because they don't confirm his theory, but pure science means seeing things the way they really are. If he says he's not going to pay attention to the experiment because he doesn't like it, that is not science. Yet this is the way most of us deal with reality, inwardly and outwardly. So how we come in contact with this more objective view, how we come in contact with things as they are, not as we wish them to be, not as we fear them to be, but as they are, is through this simple but not so easy practice of moment-to-moment, careful, non-judging attention to our experiencing, to our experience. So here's a little story told about Sharon Salzberg by Joseph Goldstein, and it's a story about her mindfulness practice. It was, it took place um, when they were, this was many years ago, 1984, they were practicing in Burma, which is one of the places that this practice of mindfulness comes from. There are wonderful teachers in Burma, and many of us have gone at various times to study with these teachers, and this was a teacher Joseph and Sharon were studying with, whose name was Upandita. And in that form of practice, when you go to see the teacher, When you go in for an interview, you go every day, and it's a very formal kind of interview. It's not like, oh, how you doing? You know, what's what's happening? It's not like that at all. You go in and you report very specifically on what you are noticing in a particular time of the day, whether you're sitting or walking. You are very precisely reporting what mindfulness is showing you about your experience. So, so here we are. Sharon came in for an interview with a prepared report of her meditative experience. Uh, When she began reporting, Upendita interrupted her. What did you notice when you brushed your teeth? She hadn't noticed. She had nothing to say. He didn't want to hear anything else, so he rang the bell and she left. The next day she came in prepared to talk about what she experienced when brushing her teeth. And she had her report already. And he asked her, what did you experience when you put your shoes on? She hadn't noticed. 
He didn't want to hear anything else, so she left. That was the end of the interview. This went on for weeks. Every day she would come in and he would ask her about something else until she was paying attention to everything she was doing. One thing was not more important than another. And that was the teaching. Can we practice that way? Can you imagine practicing that way? When we do practice this way, our perception of the world is quite transformed. Gary Snyder, there is a world behind the world we see that is the same world, but more open, more transparent. And that is the power of mindfulness, of showing us how things are in a deeper-than-ordinary way. The Zen poet Basho said, Learn about the pine from the pine. Learn about the bamboo from the bamboo. He was a poet, and I suppose this was good instruction for fellow poets or painters, but it is also a very good instruction for mindfulness practice. We are here learning about the breath from the breath, from the immediacy of being present. We are here learning about sensations from the sensations themselves, from being directly present with them. We are, her- we are here learning about pain from pain. We are here learning about calmness from calmness. We are learning about joy from joy. We are learning about anger from anger. We are learning about the truth of change, that if we look carefully, we see that our experience is changing moment to moment, all by itself. We learn about this idea of no self by careful observation that a self is not findable, not locatable. It is a story, a belief, an idea. So this is experiential learning. Not only are we having a direct experience, but it is teaching us about the nature of reality, of the nature of this mind and this body. And it is a way of knowing available to all human beings. One of my first teachers was Joseph Goldstein's teacher, who was an Indian man named Munindraji. And when I started practice, I already had a PhD in psychology, and so a lot of my learning had been through, you know, reading and theories and knowledge and studies and research. And I was just, you know, that was, that is how you get trained in psychology. So coming to learn in this other way of directly contacting my experience and trusting that something of value, that, that there was something of value in my experience, that I would be learning from it was very revolutionary for me. It was also very inspiring because no, nowhere in my life before had, had anybody, had, had I been told, come see 
learn directly, trust your experience to teach you. That was very radical and very appealing. And I remember Munindra telling stories about, um, he taught mostly in Bodhgaya, India, and he, he told us stories about the old peasant women who would come in from the villages and learn mindfulness from him. And they would go home and practice and they'd have great realizations and wonderful experiences. And they were uneducated. This to me was a revelation as a white middle-class woman. I was, it was a revelation, but it was also very, as I said, very inspiring. So this way of knowing is not dependent on literacy or education. It is, it is this innate ability we have as humans to, to learn from present awareness to learn in this immediate, direct way. And slowly over over time, this way of knowing becomes more and more um, trusted, more and more a way that is um, viewed as valuable, and it becomes apparent that thinking can be very deceptive. William Blake put it this way, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through the narrow chinks of his cavern. The journey of mindfulness practice is this cleansing of our perception. And that's not obvious at the beginning. But as our perception changes, so too does our view of ourselves and of the world. Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, I thought of her today, the, world, the, the day being so beautiful, this afternoon being so beautiful, um, she calls this learning to be astonished. This, this, this opening of her perception, she calls learning to be astonished. Because when our, when our, when we are, when our eyes are really open, the world is astonishing. Reality is astonishing. So she wrote a poem called The Messenger. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums, here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes. Or Howie last night talking about 
happiness and the discovery of the Buddha about what brings unconditional happiness, happiness not dependent on things being how we want them to be. So we hear these words, we hear these pointers towards a possibility, a promise. But here we are on retreat, having sat for two days, perhaps coming with some aspiration for greater happiness, clarity, peace, joy, ease, whatever brought us here, here we are. And perhaps you've bumped into a few difficult states of mind while you've been here. Anybody have anxiety, worry, judgment, loneliness, fear, boredom, restlessness, doubt, irritation, confusion, judgment, longing, lust, obsession, compulsion, rage, struggle, despair, grief, helplessness, self-pity, unworthiness, shame, guilt, and more judgment. Sometimes all in the course of one sitting. <laughs> so the list could go on. This is not a nearly exhausting all the possibilities there are for all the, the troublesome mind states that we can find in our pra- in, as we practice, as we open to this inner world. And of course, the, the irony is that we are in this beautiful place. I mean, are there, this, is, there could be no more ideal conditions for doing what you're doing. All your needs are cared for. You're with good people. You're, you're getting wonderful teachings. You're getting support. I mean, what could be better? And still, where's the happiness? Where's the freedom? Where's the awakening? I'm ready. Where is it? <laughs> so after two days of, of practice, if you're feeling a little frustrated, you're not alone. Because what you are coming face to face with are what are called the obstacles or the hindrances. And thousands, millions of spiritual aspirants before you have bumped into the same challenges, so not to feel discouraged. Because inherent in this path are the what are called the obstacles, sometimes called the demons or the obstructions. Call them what you will, the difficult mind states that arise when we slow down and turn inward in some continuous way. We could say that they are all variants of three states, which the the Buddha called um, the three poisons. The three poisons. What are they? Greed, hatred, and delusion. The three poisons. They accompany us everywhere. So even though we are in beautiful ideal conditions, it doesn't mean they, they stay out of the door, do they? They come in with us. So doing practice, we bump into them. 
And sometimes I like to say that doing practice is a little bit like cleaning out the garage or the attic. You start opening up things and you discover stuff you had completely forgotten about. Old memories, unfinished business, old worries, old fears. People come and they're surprised sometimes by what they discover. I had no idea that I had so much judgment. I didn't realize I was so worried. Or on the other way, you can realize, I guess I'm better off than I thought. I'm not really having any problems here. I'm doing just fine. Or I want, I want, I'm wanting all the time. Isn't there anything else going on here? Or you may have attacks of, of, you know, aversion to yourself or to the others here. I can't stand eating without talking. This is, I just can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. Or maybe it's not that, but people doing slow walking look completely, you know, moronic. What's wrong with these people? Or people breathing loudly or people coming in late. You find yourself just like tense with irritation about little tiny things, folks. These are little tiny things. But that doesn't stop us from feeling this reactivity. So what are we to do with working with these difficult mind states? In this way of practice, first of all, the encouragement is to get to know them. Probably not what you wanted to hear. Gurdjieff wrote, there are a thousand things which prevent one from awakening, which keep one in the power of one's dreams. In order to awaken, it is necessary to know the nature of the forces which keep one in a state of sleep. So that is the first task is to understand that they're not going to go away by themselves and that ignoring them or denying them is not useful. What is useful is to say, okay, may I open to this? May I learn from this? May I, may I see this as an opportunity to, to learn from these difficult experiences? There are also some um, tips on how to begin to work with them. First of all, is to recognize what it is that's present. When a difficult mind state arises, what is it? To ask yourself, what is this? Is it fear? Is it worry? Is it anxiety? Is it... Uh, anger is it what is this exactly and to sense for yourself to recognize to be truthful oh this is worry and to let yourself know and recognize what it is and to do this without alarm because sometimes when we do recognize something difficult And I'll tell you a little story uh, a little later about uh, 
my experience of working with fear on my first long retreat, fear arose. I did not want fear to be there. I didn't want anything to do with it, but there it was, and it wouldn't go away. So there was a lot of alarm. What does it mean? It means something is terribly wrong. I shouldn't be here. You know, all the stories or the judgment of myself, this shouldn't be happening. This is meditation. Meditation's not fear. And, you know, on and on. So the, the understanding that, first of all, just to recognize something without alarm, without reactivity, without the need to judge ourselves for having this experience. Instead, to uh, accept what is there, to accept what is appearing, not as a victim, oh, oh, poor me, fear, but as a reality, just to say, this is fear. Okay, I accept that fear is present. I don't like it necessarily. I wouldn't choose to have it here, but it is here. There's a poem by Rumi called The Guest House. He said, treat your meditation like a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival and uninvited guests that you would prefer not to have there at all of anger, fear, worry, whatever. But there they are. Can you open your door and welcome them? Invite them in. Sit them down. Offer them some tea. Make friends. Get to know them. So that when you are... uh, in the presence of these difficult states, you learn how to stay present. You learn how to work with them so that they are not overwhelming. Trungpa Rinpoche said, there is no cure for hot and cold. This quality of acceptance that is needed in our practice means that we stop looking for a cure where there is none. There is no cure for rain or sun, for earthquakes or tsunamis. There is no cure for impermanence, for birth or death. Meditation opens us to all the conditions of life for which there is no cure. Another cartoon of a woman and in a doctor's office, and he's, she's looking a little piqued, and he's saying to her, there is no cure, Mrs. Handler. That's because there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> we kind of have the idea that if we're having some kind of negative mind states, state, it means that something is wrong with us. This is an error. This is an error. There is nothing wrong with any state of mind, with loneliness, with worry, with fear, with jealousy, with lust. There's nothing wrong with us. This is understanding that as humans, we come with quite an extensive repertoire of states of mind and that in opening ourselves in meditation we're being willing to include them all we're being willing to meet them all uninvited though they may be and we discover that when we do that 
we're being given an opportunity to learn to be present so that we are not so overwhelmed. Sometimes we think that accepting what is present means you are wallowing or condoning what is present. No, it is simply a piece of self-honesty. It is a piece of truthfulness about your experience. I think of acceptance as a kind of, it's a way of saying yes to life rather than this tendency to resist, to want to push something away. Pesta Gertler wrote this poem called The Healing Time. Finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. Saying yes to all the uninvited guests. There's an alchemy in this. When we accept that something is present and when we begin to open ourselves to it, to shine the light of awareness into it, we discover that being directly present is the way through. We see they are not obstacles to be overcome, but the way we train ourselves in wisdom and compassion. It is the way we use all of our experience to cultivate this kind of capacity to meet life a capacity for insight, for understanding, for compassion. Rumi says this, If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow down to. That is the attitude of seeing all that occurs as an opportunity for greater wisdom, for greater compassion, for greater understanding. So I had my chance on this first long retreat. I was... I had signed up for a three-month retreat at Insight Meditation back in Barrie, Massachusetts. And every autumn they have a three-month retreat, just as we have a two-month retreat here at Spirit Rock every spring, February and March. You can come and sit here for a month, for six weeks, for two months. It is a wonderful, life-changing experience. But... There I was at the beginning of this long retreat and fear arose and would not go away. Even though I had my PhD in psychology and I'd done all kinds of psychotherapy and I thought I had dealt with, you know, 
I shouldn't be having fear. What's wrong with me? So I got very afraid of the fear. There was nothing objectively to be afraid of, but there I was feeling all this fear. And somehow I had the idea that because I was feeling so much fear that they would have some, my teachers would give me some special break or, you know, some special secret thing that would, you know, help it. But what did they tell me? They told me exactly what I've been telling you, you know, to open to it, to be with it, to notice it, to see what it was made of, you know, to notice the story that comes, to go, let go of the story, feel it in the body. I mean, did I want to do this? No way, no way. But it wouldn't go away. So, as is often the case, we use mindfulness as a last resort when nothing else has worked. No amount of denial or ignoring or pretending or like trying to do metta to make it go away. Nothing like that, nothing. Finally, it was like, okay, I'll do what they say. So, of course, that became a tremendous learning experience for me. I learned a lot about what it means to explore a rather tenacious and unpleasant mind state with mindfulness. One of the things I learned is that mindfulness is not casual. It's not like, oh, I'll notice it a little and then I'll do something else. It's not like that at all. The word mindfulness is used these days in all kinds of contexts that don't really speak to its actual depth. You know, people use it in, in language like um, be mindful to, you know, get the dog food when you go to the store or, you know, as a way of sort of remembering in that very casual way. Whereas the mindfulness that I learned about and that we teach here has three aspects that are, that are helpful to know about and are very uh, significant. One aspect is that mindfulness is not superficial. It penetrates deeply into our moment-to-moment experience. For example, something seems very solid, like a pain in the body. And when we are willing to give our full attention to an area that we would call pain, we find that pain is actually made of a number of different sensations that it is a changing, dancing field of many different sensations. Sort of like if you look at something solid under a, a microscope, under a microscope, and you see, oh my God, this is moving, changing, there's all kinds of things dancing around in there. Pain is the same. We see that when we look very carefully at anything, it's not so solid. It is a, it is a constantly changing phenomena. The second aspect of mindfulness that I learned about is how important it is to keep the object of our attention, to keep coming back to it, not to just glance over it and then look for something else, but to, if there's something predominant present, that we keep returning our attention to it. We don't ignore it or pretend it is not happening. We don't let it disappear. We stay in touch moment to moment. The third aspect of mindfulness is this quality of intimacy. 
that we I talked about uh, at the beginning of the talk, this quality of directly experiencing something, not thinking about it, but meeting it directly with a kind of with a kind of intimacy. You know, when you know someone or something intimately, you're, you're very close, you're very attentive, you have full presence, you, you stay there, you don't run away, you open to what is present. So all these qualities of mindfulness, of it not being superficial, of it keeping its focus very... Uh, intently and this quality of intimacy are all aspects that help us to go to penetrate underneath the appearance of things so in doing this I came to know the nature of fear I saw that fear is a story and fear comes with a big story as does every strong emotion they come with stories and it's very easy to believe the story of fear but I began to see that it wasn't necessarily telling the truth. It was just telling the story of fear. And that's what fear does. It tells a big story. And we get easily seduced into believing it, into thinking that what it is telling us is true. I came to see that when I let go of the story and came into the body, I could feel a number of unpleasant sensations in the body. It was a lot easier to feel unpleasant sensations than it was to sit and repeat the story over and over. That was really, that was, that was fearful. But to say, I can be with these unpleasant sensations begins to open the fear, begins to deconstruct its solidity. Um, I also came to see that it wasn't always present. There were many moments in the day when fear was not present. And that's a good thing to notice in our practice, that these things that we think are always there are not always there. Nothing is always there. There's not one mind state that is always there. Things come and they go, unless we keep repeating the story. You want to keep something around? Repeat the story endlessly, and you will wear yourself out. So it was through working with fear that I came to trust that seeing what is true in the moment is the way through these difficult states. Even the strongest and most entangled knots can be released with moment-to-moment attention. And that is a very liberating experience. In some sense, I can't say that I that fear is gone, but I'm not as, since that experience, which was some years ago, I am no longer as afraid of fear as I once was. It does not have the same hold on me. So, this has been a lot of talk. I'm about to finish. I have spoken about mindfulness, how it works, how we experience it, how we can begin to use it in exploring different mind states which visit us in the course of practice. 
The Buddha demonstrated in his life, through his life and through his teaching, that we can use mindfulness in all domains of our experience. There is no experience we can have which cannot be understood more clearly or touched more deeply by the practice of mindfulness. So I'll finish with a little uh, kind of a metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh offers us about mindfulness and how it helps us. He says, when we practice mindfulness, we nourish the awareness of being in the here and the now. When we practice mindful walking or mindful eating or mindful breathing, we give ourselves an opportunity to touch what is here, to touch the wonders of life that are available to us. We are providing ourselves with a boat that helps us not to sink into the ocean of forgetfulness, the ocean of despair, the ocean of suffering. When we are suffering, we feel heavy, weighty. Left alone, we can easily sink into the river of suffering. When you release a piece of rock into the river, it will sink. But if you place the rock in a boat, you know that it will not sink. The suffering in us is like a piece of rock. Sometimes it feels heavy and it makes us sink into the ocean of suffering. But if you know how to provide yourself with a boat, you will not sink. This is a wonderful thing. You can see it for yourself. You can test it. You can try it out. You can provide yourself with a boat. Mindfulness is the boat that prevents you from sinking into the past, into worries, into despair. So it is a wonderful resource for us in our practice and in our lives. So let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for your practice. We now have a half an hour for walking meditation in the lovely evening air. So enjoy, and we'll come together again at 9 o'clock. We'll have, uh, once again, some chanting in that sitting. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.